1: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
2: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Uh, This today is one of our patron requests. So if you didn't know, if you become a patron of History Hack, you get to tell us who you most want to have on the podcast and this is what's happened here so today we're joined by Thomas Morris who's a medical historian um and you were personally requested Thomas by one of our listeners who said that of all the people in the world she would like to listen to you talk about your last book which was the mystery of the exploding teeth and other curiosities from the history of medicine so we're thrilled to have you hello
1: hi thanks
2: for having me and you're also you're in Canada at the moment um temporarily aren't you so how's lockdown over there
1: uh, it's okay. Um, it's, I mean, to be honest, it's, it, I spend most of my time in a library or sitting at a, at a table at home writing, so it's not that different from normal, except I can't go to the library. Um, so, yeah.
2: You're starting to um, die without archives now. I quite miss, like I'm always complaining about sitting in archives, but I quite miss them now.
1: <laughs> Well, it's it's odd, but a huge a, a huge amount of what I do now is online. Um, the museums have digi- museums and libraries have digitised such an enormous volume of stuff now that um, I find I can do the majority of what I need away. And in fact, um, the book I'm working on at the moment, I had a but luckily I had um uh, a tr- i made a trip to Dublin to do some archive research back in October, and um, I got a huge amount of material there, and I've got it all digitized and photographed on my computer now so I can do everything I like from home
2: oh you're in the smug category there's two categories there's the smug category that just finished a book or just done an archive um, raid before lockdown and then there's me in the other category with other historians who were about to go to archives and have been twiddling our thumbs a little bit although in my case it's actually forced me to read all the books about Edward VIII that I had to read and was putting off so I think I'm paying for uh, for putting him to one side for too long. But let's talk about your book. Um, this is this is going to be so... I'd be failing our listeners if I didn't ask you, first of all, because we are famously unbashful at History Hack. You were inspired to write this book by a giant scrotum, weren't you?
1: Uh, in a manner of speaking, yes. I was um, it, this this book came about as a kind of offshoot as a um, as a project I was working on a few years ago. Um, I wrote a book about the history of heart surgery, and a lot of the research for that book was in medical libraries, uh, mm. reading hundreds of of old medical papers. Um, but at a, quite an early stage of the research, I was looking into the way that heart disease was treated in the nineteenth century. And I was reading a copy of, I think it was the Lancet from the 1820s. And you know, the, you know the way you're you're reading something and then you spot something on the opposite page that's more interesting, more interesting than the worthy article you're meant to be reading. Always. Um, <laughs> on this occasion, there was a headline that caught my eye, and the headline was "Sudden protrusion of the whole of the intestines into the scrotum." Um, Ouch. <laughs> My attention for obvious reasons, but actually, what interested me about it was when I read the article. There was a lot. There was a lot that was kind of intriguing about it, and it's a story about a, a man from Bristol who was um, he was a labourer who was run over by a cart laden with bricks, and he got this terrible injury. Um, and when he was taken off to the hospital, they found that most of his abdominal contents were now kind of bulging into his scrotum. Um and it's a type of um it's a type of injury called an inguinal hernia. Um, and the kind of the more I read this story, the more I was intrigued by it. Because I assumed, of course, that something somebody, somebody who suffered a an injury like that in eighteen twenty six or eighteen twenty-nine it was, um, would inevitably die. But actually they managed to save his life.
2: It was hanging uh, down his halfway down his thigh, wasn't it, at one point?
1: Yeah, I mean Uh, It was a a really horrendous injury. And the way they treated it was quite simple. They just kind of used soothing poultices to ease the pain. And then they put him on a bed and elevated his legs above his abdomen. And they shoved it down until the intestines went through the the inguinal canal, which is this uh, small passage that goes between the abdominal cavity and the scrotum. Um, And they managed to put it back in place. So they, they saved him. Um, and, and it was that kind of little combination of the, you know, the sheer horror of the headline um, and the kind yeah. of <laughs> disgusting nature of it, with the insight you get into how medical practice, um, you know, existed 200 years ago. Um, and I found that the more I looked at these old journals, the more I come across similar or, you know, similarly disgusting stories. So so I started to collect them.
2: Yes, brilliant if we can so what we'll do if it's okay with you is go through you've got various subheadings in the book, so we'll just go through and chat out basically some of the brilliant stuff that you found this one caught my eye because the first section in the book is unfortunate predicaments uh, which is understating a little bit when you get into this section uh, and naturally uh, because it. It is hilarious if it's not happening to you um, and it's a distance of 200 odd years. There was a headline that caught your eye that was an account of a fork put up the anus that was afterwards drawn out through the buttock.
1: Yes, uh, which uh, it should be said comes from uh, one of the great scientific journals and the first, it's still being published today, um, you know, 400 years on. Uh, It's the... Um, Philosophical Transactions which is the official publication of the Royal Society Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. and this was published in 1724 so it's a very kind of um, mainstream um, scientific journal Uh, but it's also I think one of the best headlines in the scientific literature
2: yeah (laughs) it's going to catch your eye isn't it but I mean it's important to point out this isn't a nonsense publication is it as you've said it's a renowned publication and it's a genuine case
1: Yeah, and one of the interesting things about about these cases is um, the way in which uh, the the professional literature has evolved considerably. Um, Medical journals um, got going... Well, I mean, the first one was in the 17th century, but they became a kind of mainstream part of medical practice around 1800. The late 18th century saw a number of uh, new foundations of medical journals. So this case is actually from rather before then. um, And in these days, the philosophical transactions collected together a huge amount of very varied scientific uh, research uh, might have included geology, astronomy, mathematics and medicine. Um, And many of the cases that they were sent were basically no more than anecdotes mm. <laughs> and this is one of them it's a really fantastic anecdote um sent sent to them by a surgeon from suffolk last uh, a man called robert Payne. and um in fact incidentally he may be a distant relative of mine because uh, my grandmother was a Payne, and i know there were some forebears from suffolk but anyway um it was a, it's a this story is about uh an apprenticeship carpenter from great yarmouth who yeah. had terrible abdominal pain for quite a long time. And um, the medicine that he was prescribed by his doctor didn't really seem to have very much um, effect. And then uh, one day he developed this swelling in his left buttock. Um, and the, um, when the surgeon went to examine him, uh, he found the prongs of a fork appearing through um, uh, a hole in the centre of this mast. Um, and uh, eventually this entire fork, emerged and um, an interesting question is how on earth he got there and he wouldn't tell at first um, until his guardian said that he would uh, stop his allowance if he didn't explain what he'd done mm. and it turns out it says in in the report um, that uh, he, being costive he put the fork up his fundament so essentially he was constipated and he thought he'd work it loose with a, a handy implement oh no um, because unfortunately it slipped up so far that he could not recover it again.
2: I'm going to ask this on behalf of our listeners, because I know that at least the male half of our listeners are thinking this. Which end first?
1: Uh, it was the proms first.
2: Oh, my God. Really? Poor guy.
1: I mean, the, the amazing thing about this. So the um, uh, there's, a, there's a lovely PS this report, which is... Yeah. He says. He says he, trouble or pain till a month or more after it was put up. Um, I mean, the, the amazing thing about this really is that he didn't suffer any, he doesn't seem to suffer any sort of infection or um, or, or problems afterwards because uh, he, he certainly punctured his um, uh, his rectum. And uh, you might expect there to be a, a, certainly a danger of infection, um, you know, fecal matter getting to blood and so on, mm. but he seemed to take the worst effects of it
2: wow um it's, he's fortunate let's leave people's privates alone uh, we will inevitably end up back on them because this is this is me and this is history hack and it's what brits love best how does one end up being shot by a toasting fork uh
1: well <laughs> uh, just in the, uh, the 1830s um in in worcestershire actually it was a, so this is a, a local doctor called dr davis um, from Upton Upon Seven in Worcestershire. Um, and it was a 10-year-old boy who wanted to make himself um, a toy gun. And um, the implement he chose was a telescopic toasting fork. Um, and I assume he chose it because it had basically a, a kind of cavity. Um, you know, if you've got something that's telescopic, then you need one hollow tube to slide um, around another. And he plugged one end of this uh this hollow tube with a plug of wood. Um and then uh there was a little hole in the side of the cylinder uh into which he poured the gunpowder and whatever he was using as a as a you know a ball or a bullet or whatever. And um when he set off this gun for the first time, the fork end, the bit with the prongs, um um no sorry it wasn't the bit of the problems it was the it was the plug it was a bit of wood he'd stuck into the barrel of this thing um shot out with such force that it hit him in the chest and then disappeared and there was no kind of external mark of any note so the parents and then the doctor assumed that um um it had just kind of bounced off and um he was still able to walk and he was okay for a couple of days after the accident that he was he survived for another fortnight And um, after that, he rapidly became ill and um, eventually sadly died.
2: Mm.
1: And the interesting thing is what happened at the postmortem. And there is a there's an illustration. Um, And when the doctor examined his heart, he found this really quite substantial piece of wood, several inches long, had lodged in one of the ventricles of his heart. And it's an interesting question about how it got in there, because actually the, the heart itself was not scarred. So what seems to have happened is that it um, punctured possibly the pulmonary artery, one of the, 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 the major vessels above the heart, mm. and then just slipped backwards inside. Um, but it's pretty extraordinary that something so large as that could exist in somebody's heart for so long.
2: It's insane. He falls into, I think, a category that you have a theory, don't you, about unbelievably stupid things done by young men being responsible for a lot of this stuff.
1: Yeah, well, if you show these cases to um, a doctor, um, you will find that a lot of things that sound absurd to us that happened in, say, 1820, um, actually, there's nothing particularly novel about them to a doctor who spent a year or two working at A&E. Um, and there is this kind of constant quality to um, human fallibility, which is that uh, young men are still doing the same stupid things themselves that they were doing you know 100 or 200 years ago Um, didn't in the
2: jackass movie didn't they uh, mess around with putting toy cars up each other's bombs i'm sure Uh... i remember that
1: I can't say uh, I can't say I'm familiar with that, but yeah. <laughs> so. I think
2: they did. I think they were messing around with putting them in condoms and shoving them up the backsides. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I think this is certainly like everybody's got these um, anecdotes, haven't they, about emergency rooms, uh, casualty departments and people sort of claiming to have fallen off a chair whilst naked and these things have disappeared up them. And it doesn't seem to be something we've invented in our generation.
1: No, absolutely not. And and it's, it's a constant all the way through. So I found cases from the 1940s where, yes, you know, soldiers claim to have, uh, uh, the soldiers, that is is a particular case I'm remembering, yeah, claim to have, you know, walked backwards onto a broom or whatever. Um, um, so yes, and, and it's, it is particularly, I mean, the reason I say young men is that it does seem to be particularly young men in these case reports a lot of the time. And if they're not sticking uh, unusual foreign objects into orifices where they're not meant to go, it's, it's Things they haven't really thought through, like um, trying like, to
2: like the making the gun with the toasting fork.
1: Exactly. Yes. Mm. Or think. They see what happened if they, you know, exploded a, you know, whatever it happens to be. Fireworks are uh, one particular recurring thing. Oh my god!
2: Um, but you didn't just write about nonsense by young men, did you? You, there are other categories. I mean, one of them is mysterious illness. What's your favourite? Is it the exploding teeth that you used to title the book?
1: Uh, well, that's that, that's an interesting one. Although, I mean, uh, the, 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 uh, there's one aspect to that which is a bit unsatisfactory. That's the exploding teeth is um, it emanates from a case report uh, submitted to an American den- journal called Dental Cosmos, and it was an older um, dentist, so near the end of his career, submitted three cases quite widely separated in time, of patients he thought. Um, had experienced dental explosions. The first of them was a priest who um, developed this excruciating toothache and then spent a the day kind of walking up and down in, the, in his garden, trying hoping it would go away. And then the following morning, he said it exploded with audible report, and suddenly his pain had all gone. Um, and the same dentist recorded three of these, kind of broadly similar. One of them I quite like. There's a um, a female patient whose tooth exploded so violently that she was deafened for a considerable time afterwards. Um, The the aspect of of this, um, which is slightly unsatisfactory, is that there isn't really a good explanation for what might have happened. Mm. Um, Teeth don't explode. And although um, I've spoken to dentists and chemists about possible mechanisms, there's nothing that quite fits the bill. Um, I think the one that I like uh, is um, a case that, goes right back to um the 17th century actually and it was a um it's a post-mortem case um, of a young man who died in his early 20s i think he was only 21 or 22 and there's this wonderful um florid description of the post-mortem by the doctor who performed it or who was present at it and they found in the heart of this young man uh, this enormous, great, what they described as a serpent or worm. And there's a there's a drawing of it, which does indeed make it look quite like a, a serpent. It's a great mm. long, several <laughs> inches long. And at the time, um, the doctor thought it was actually some sort of creature that had just sort of... Um, being created um, out of nowhere and inhabited the heart and eventually killed him. Um, and the reason I like this case is that the description of what they found is so clear that it is actually possible to diagnose with reasonable certainty what was actually going on. Um, and it wasn't um, a snake. It was probably a blood clot. And it was a very rare genetic disorder, um, which, which probably caused it. There are other symptoms um, described there as well, including problems with the kidneys and also the fact that the heart muscle was hardened, um, and I showed this case report to a cardiologist friend, and he said, "Oh yes, I think I know what caused this." So the reason I like that is although the, the medical knowledge at the time was not developed enough to re- able to, to enable them to come to anything like a sound diagnosis. The descript the description in the case report is so clear that a modern doctor can look at it and say, "Oh yes I know what 's going on here
2: that 's great i unfortunately'm a massive child, and when I looked at this section, the one that will like mesmerize me there 's a woman who peed through her nose
1: yeah that 's also a very intriguing case because not least because it was the lead story in what is now one of the the leading medical journals in the world, the New England Journal of medicine um, and um In fact, the doctor who reported it, who had a great name, he was Dr. Salmon A. Arnold of Providence, Rhode Island. I love it. He came up with this um, uh, entirely new medical term for it, which was paruria erratica. Um, And paruria erratica is a Latin phrase, which means um, wandering disorder of urination. I love that
2: they don't have Latin words for a lot of things, but they have words for that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so and, and what was going on with this woman i mean what he describes is that um she originally um she she, she had a um a prolapsed uterus and this led to um an inability to urinate um now that's that's a well-known um secondary uh, presentation of uh, a prolapse uterus because it compresses the, the, the uterus, falls out of place and compresses the bladder and makes it difficult or impossible to urinate. But then this urine started to emanate from various different orifices in her body. Um, so it started off um, just trying to remember where, where it actually starts off. Oh, yeah, it's coming out of her ear um and eventually both ears and then her nose and her eye and then all sorts of strange parts of her body like her nipples um and then there's this extraordinary scene where the doctor says he heard he hears a, a violent pop like a cork being drawn from a bottle and then a fountain of urine came from her navel
2: Oh my! <laughs> God.
1: so this is a great long case report with uh, he even uh, uh, he, he appended to it this thing called the Diary of the Discharges, which is where he's notated every single place that the, the urine came from uh, over her body and on which date, so that you know there's an accurate record for other doctors to look at and analyse. Um, and the interesting question is what on earth was going on here. Um, and the first thing it's important to say is that it cannot possibly have happened the way he described. But if you're ingenious about it, there are a couple of, interesting and rare medical phenomena, which may partly explain it. Um, So she may have been suffering from um, uh, um, a condition called uh, uremic frost. Well, before that, a condition called uremia, where the the waste products in the blood build up to such a a level that um, they can get expelled through the skin. And um, so you can get crystals of urea forming actually on your skin. And if you sweat, then the liquid that kind of results smells a lot like urine. So it is just possible that, that that is the explanation for what was going on there.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
2: It's brilliant, isn't it? The way that I love what you've done is not only say, um, this is hilarious, this story, but what you've done, then look into it and say, well, why did this happen? And is this accurate? And what could have been the problem? I really like about it. Because you also have a boy in there as well that puked his own twin up, isn't it?
1: uh yes um it was given the headline originally 1835 this was published and the headline was a fetus vomited by a boy um and it's a it's a slightly inexplicable case this one um i mean i i certainly wouldn't um you know i wouldn't venture to say that i knew what was going on there um it was um it's a slightly dubious case in that it was recorded in a very remote part of greece Um, by a local doctor he was actually French but but living in Greece Um, and it it was published kind of a a, a couple of removes from from the original source so it's difficult to tell even whether the original case report was was truthful Um, but it was um, uh, this boy who was uh, I can't remember how old he was but he was um, kind of I think a teenager Um, and um, he had Um, abdominal pain which is what the doctor was treating him for um and the the doctor gave him an emetic to make him sick and uh in fact the the sentence of the the relevant sentence of the report says um um so this medicine produced slight vomiting this lasted a short time when the vomiting returned with excessive pain and at length he vomited a fetus by the mouth
2: is this likely
1: Um, It seems extremely unlikely. And Mm -hmm. in fact, uh, one of the leading uh, physiologists in France uh, was asked to analyze this um, um, this this happening. And they sent this fetus uh, in, um, I assume, some sort of preserving fluid for him to analyze. And all he concluded was that um, it was indeed a human fetus. there was some suggestion. They also, the, the boy unfortunately uh, subsequently died and they also performed a post-mortem to see if they could find where it had come from. Mm. They found slight um, indications on the inside of the stomach that there might have been something attached to it. But I mean, it's, it's just not plausible um, for all sorts of different reasons. So I think this is one I would chalk up to the category.
2: Yeah, it, it's grim. I hope for his sake that's not what was happening on, but obviously it doesn't make any difference to the outcome for that. One of the other things you covered was not only dubious cases, but dubious remedies that people came up with. This was a great topic. What's your favourite one in here?
1: Um, I think, um, well, there's actually there's, there's, there's one I've, um, I don't think I included in the book, which was um, the brief vogue of spiders' web as a, as a cure for fevers. Um, which was which was um enthusiastically embraced by um, a british army doctor who was i think in the in the west indies at the time and um, there is um and perhaps the most absurd is now this is quite an interesting um, invasion of sort of folk medicine into modern medical practice and if you look at the early literature you can quite often see where folk remedy and, and oral tradition is overlapping with uh medicine which is trying to take itself seriously as an evidence-based science so there was uh, in the mid-19th century a very influential uh, textbook on pediatric medicine uh, which is published in germany it's called hamburg der med um, Medizinischen Klinik, which means Handbook of a Medical Clinic, uh, by a German doctor called Carl Friedrich Kahnstadt. And uh, he came up with this remedy for um, what he called eclampsia of children. Now, eclampsia is something else uh, in modern terms, uh, but what he was talking about was um, essentially uh, fits in, in, in infancy. And his idea, which he had been told, presumably by uh, some folk, uh, it was a folk medicine tradition, was to use a pigeon's rump to kind of suck the, uh, the paroxysms out of the, the patient's body. So it basically involves holding a live pigeon against a baby as it, as it is in the grip of this, of this fit. Um, and in his case reports, uh, he says that the pigeon died while the child got better.
2: <laughs> um, yeah,
1: <laughs> and there are there are a few case reports from around the same time around 1850 um there's there's a, a um a german doctor in russia a uh, dr weiser who who subsequently wrote a couple of articles about it in in other journals uh saying no this actually worked really well There's a lovely sentence I like at the end of that case report where he says that, uh, uh, you know, it it seems strange, but it seems to work and experiments with other poultry are necessary.
2: (laughs) I just want to know where the original logic came from, that if you smother a child with a live pigeon, it will be good for it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's a very strange one. And I think it must be an invasion of, of, of a folk tradition. It's a kind of traditional remedy that lingered just long enough for a doctor to take it up and think, well, maybe there is something to this.
2: And my favourite, because it is just so in depth, is the tapeworm trap. That sounds pretty grim, the idea of that one being implored on you.
1: Yeah, this is a device invented in America in the 1840s by a guy called James Marion Sims, Um, And and this is kind of a crackpot inventor more than it is um, serious medical practice. But um, his idea was that people who are suffering from tapeworm could use this device which he had invented, which is like a a tiny metal cage. And he baited it with cheese, like a mousetrap. And this thing was it's like a kind of it looks like a sort of cigar or something. And it was attached to a chain or piece of string and you swallowed it. And then you had to let it sit in your stomach for a matter of hours, so not, not just 10 minutes or something. Um, and then eventually he suggested the tapeworm would smell the cheese, kind of climb up from your intestines into your stomach, bite the cheese and then get trapped. And then once you could feel it wriggling on the end of your, um, your string, you just tugged it up again and disposed of the tapeworm. Um, now he claims to have, um, uh, to, to have treated several patients successfully with this and he, he got a patent for it um but he was he was a bit um naive i think in the way he marketed this because not only according to the terms of the, of the patent not only uh, was the device his own property but he was the only person allowed to use it so i mean that's one of many reasons that didn't catch on
2: yeah that and it being horrific i think but it got worse than just um crack remedies as well you have a section on horrifying operations don't you which was the most disturbing one to research
1: uh, well, there's um, there's a very unfortunate case um, which concerns a Chinese patient, and today you often hear people talking about health tourism, and it's yeah. generally about patients who are, you know, going going to another country. We we hear a lot about British patients going to um, places like Turkey to get inexpensive plastic surgery. But it's interesting to find that health tourism was a thing right back 200 years ago um, when a Chinese labourer called Hulu um, walked into an ophthalmic clinic that had been set up um, by British missionaries uh, in mainland China. And uh, he had, he was suffering from this absolutely terrible uh, tumor, which had affected and engulfed um, most of his groin, basically. And um, thanks to charitable donations and various other um, sources of money, he was sent back to London to be operated on by the finest surgeons there were. And I won't go into detail because, Um, the the case report about this operation is pretty horrifying. Um, And the leading surgeons of the day decided to try and cut off this enormous tumor. um, And they were being far too ambitious. It was 1833. There was no anesthesia. um, Operative technique was not yet sufficiently developed to perform that sort of massive plastic um, surgery procedure. And he died on the table. And one of the, extraordinary things about this case report is that there were hundreds and hundreds of people in the operating theater. Of course, this is the time pre Lister. So there was no, um, there were no antiseptic measures taken. So you you imagine this very crowded, packed, um, cramped operating theater with these hundreds of people breathing their germs um, into the air. Um, And this patient who was not in, he he had some opium, but that was it. Um, And It's, I think, an interesting moment in the history of surgery because uh, there was such an outcry at the cruelty of this operation, the amount of suffering that this poor man had been through, having travelled halfway across the world, thought was a possible cure. That I think surgeons actually started to think much more seriously about whether it was really worth inflicting some of the misery um, that they were on their patients. Is it the beginning
2: of realizing the balance between being able to do the cutting side of it and the actual prognosis for the patient and whether you actually should do the I mean because obviously you can hack anything out if you want to to think about the consequences for the patient more than just the development of having achieved it for medicine.
1: Well I don't know how influential this particular operation was but I I think it is significant that this is a period at which uh, surgeons started to be a bit less gung-ho um, and, and heroic surgery was um, a big part of the development of uh, the science in that period from um, in the 1820 uh, years earlier and in the kind of in the 1810s. Astley Cooper, um, who was actually present at this operation uh, on Hulu uh, in 1833, um, he was doing things like operating on uh, major aneurysms, um, in blood, blood vessel problems.
2: Yeah. Things that would not be
1: done successfully uh, until a century later, um, and actually, it's not really until the advent of anesthesia in the late 1840s um, that surgeons turned back to to, to doing that more uh, that more ambitious type of operation with anything like the same enthusiasm. You
2: also covered some remarkable recoveries in the book. Tell us about the one that got me. There was a guy that at one point had uh, a big chunk of his brain hanging out, wasn't there?
1: Uh, Yeah, so um, I think uh, the case you're referring to, is this is one from um, uh, New Jersey. uh, That's the one. Yeah. Um, And in fact, there are a surprising number of these cases. Um, uh, Brain is a really remarkable organ in that it's possible to lose really quite large portions of it, and uh, the consequences can be not nearly so bad as you'd imagine. Um, But this... Was a um, a man who was he was injured by somebody wielding an axe, and in fact the report is somewhat vague about the cause or why he might have been attacked with an axe, and it cut off quite a large portion of the skull, um, and with it um, the brain. So the the, the surgeon describes. Um, so he says. Uh, the wound was made by a sharp axe, which in the hands of a strong and angry man was driven with such force as to make a section of the skull, cutting off a portion of the brain, which remained in its situation in the severed portion of the skull, hanging down on the shoulder. So, Ouch. <laughs> a terrible sounding injury, you know, large portion of skull with, with brain in it, um, de- detached from the skull, but still attached to it by a, by a flap of skin. Um, and, the, the patient actually survived I mean he was able straight after injury he was able to walk with assistance and talk in a rational manner um, and the surgeon did save his life because um, there was a blood vessel severed, there were others exposed and he managed to make those safe and, and secure them um, and replace the flap as he describes it now the, the, the chances are that that portion of brain died because you can't sever brain matter from Um, the organ and then hope it'll grow back
2: yeah but Um, did they essentially just shoved it all back in his head didn't they
1: yeah um yeah the um uh, the brain the brain that he replaced will not have um as it were grown back it will have been absorbed by the body but the key thing was that he um repaired the wounds and controlled infections so much Mm -hmm. of the success of when patients suffered these really terrible injuries in the 19th century or earlier Um, So often they were saved by a surgeon doing very basic things like making sure a wound was clean. um, And even before they understood the nature of infection and um, before the germ theory gained acceptance, they did understand very often that uh, you needed to clean wounds and prevent um, foreign matter or infected material from getting into it. And when they observed this basic hygiene, they often had really quite good results.
2: It's great. You have a section on tall tales as well. I put down the human waxwork, but what was your favourite?
1: Um, well, my favourite is probably one that didn't happen, actually, and partly because it tells you a lot about, um, a lot about the nature of scientific evidence uh, in the 19th century. Um, there was no such thing as peer review um, for most of the period covered in this book. Um, and so some of the stories that get into the literature were um, at second or third hand. So sometimes a, a doctor would write to a journal with something that a patient had told them rather than something they'd seen at first hand. And sometimes it was um, a doctor would write in saying, one of my colleagues tells me this thing that the patient told him. Oh, okay. so the, the patients might not be telling the truth. But my favourite is this story from a 19th century American newspaper originally, but then reported in the medical literature, of a man who had taught his... Uh, first uh, a puppy and then his own baby to breathe underwater um, so it, there's, uh, the headline of this story was the, the amphibious infant um, and it's a man from Chicago and he, he thought he worked out a physiological mechanism by which it was possible for uh, a human to remain underwater for many minutes at a time up to a half an hour or longer and he claimed to have trained his infant son without telling the mother.
2: Yeah, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall when his wife saw him experimenting on the baby.
1: He have a whole kind of elaborate by which this was working, in, in, in involving the way the infant heart develops in the first few days of life. Um, and there is an account of uh, the newspaper, newspaper journalist being invited to the man's house to see this this child in action, and um, he describes how the child swims underwater for kind of 20 minutes and retrieves objects thrown into the water by his father. Um, And the important thing to remember about this is that, although it was reported in the newspaper and then by all the medical journals, I think they were all taken in by a hoax, because there's no record of this person existing. He claims to have been a doctor. He wasn't. Um, There's no record of him beyond this one newspaper article. And it was published at a time which um, is often regarded as the golden age of the newspaper hoax. Um, one, of the, one of the kind of most enthusiastic hoaxes was Mark Twain, um, who, who loved to kind of publish entirely fictional stories of disasters that had never happened. There's a famous one, which was a, a theatre, which he reported had burned to the ground, killing half the audience. And the theatre itself never existed, never mind the audience. It's the kind of stuff you'd
2: get away with on Twitter now, isn't
1: it? It's it's fake news, exactly. So given that there's no record of this man and that what he claims to have done is utterly implausible, I think the most likely thing is that somebody put it in a newspaper for a laugh and then all these gullible medical journals picked up what they thought was a fantastic story without bothering to check what had actually happened.
2: Oh, dear. True history hack style. Let's finish with this one. Tell us about the chap who supposedly sliced his penis in two.
1: Okay, well, this one, by contrast, is actually, I think, rather well sourced. Um, It it, it appears at several points in in medical literature. Um, I think the first source is a a book by a great French surgeon called Francois Chopin. um, And he was a pioneer of neurology. So... Um, uh, he published this textbook uh, which is uh, in, the title translates into English as "Treatise on Maladies of the Urinary Tract um, and it's a story of a man called Gabriel Galian and, um, or Galian, I don't know how you pronounce that uh, that, that name um, and he was uh, well let's just say he was an enthusiastic masturbator <laughs> I love that, <laughs> he should uh, go on his headstone uh, <laughs> and um, the, well, in fact that's how he's described in the French original which is 200 years old so I think I can get away with it um, yeah. <laughs> but he, um, he found that his usual methods of um, enjoying himself became less and less effective um, so he had to become rather more um, uh, ingenious in, in the means he used and he started using a stick kind of inserted up his own urethra uh, to pleasure himself, um, and eventually this developed into using um, a sharp object, and eventually a knife, um, and he ended up cutting his own penis in two. Um, and the reason I think this is quite well sourced is that there's a very detailed case report which um, Chopin actually wrote, having um, uh, having examined him for himself, um, and the patient was unwilling to tell him what he'd done at first, um, and eventually. Confess to it. But it's a fairly horrifying, horrifying case. report. I will not go into all the details because I don't think I can with um, without feeling a bit queasy myself. But <laughs> he, does, he does get a really great um, um, nickname out of this, which is that Chopin, the, the surgeon, called his patient a truly extraordinary masturbator, which is, uh, I'm sure, a title of which any patient today could be proud.
2: Definitely. Um, Thomas, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about your book. This barely scratches the surface of the amazing cases that you uncovered for it. Remind everybody what it's called. Uh,
1: The Mystery of Exploding Teeth and Other Curiosities from the History of Medicine.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a riot. Um, I have literally cackled my way through it um, and cringed quite a lot as well. But there's some fantastic research in there. And like I say, it doesn't just stop at sort of retelling these things. It actually looks at the uh, plausibility of them and what it could have been. So thanks so much for coming on to share some of the stories with us. Thanks nice for having me. Join us tomorrow when Joseph Quinn will be talking all about Irish volunteers in World War II. It's about time we had some more Irish history on the show. So we're really excited to bring you that one. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so.
1: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ